For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In our teaching here on 1 Peter chapter 2, Pastor Adam uses the imagery of the temple to remind us of who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Him. Let's join Pastor Adam now with a message entitled, Living Stones. Alright, once again, good evening everybody. Whoo man, third time's a charm, you know. I'm running on a different time zone up here, I think. I'd like to welcome you back to your seats if you haven't gotten there already. We will be in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I know it's midweek service and all, and we're usually in the Old Testament, but um, Pastor Ross isn't here, so I get to do whatever I want, pretty much. Um, as I mentioned, Pastor Ross and Barb, and also Pastor Carlin and his wife Jeanette, are down in Costa Mesa at the um, the main uh, Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference. Uh, Pastor Jim and I were left up here to hold down the fort and tend to our families, and so um, it's a blessing to be able to uh, fill the uh, spot for Pastor Ross. He's, as Jim has mentioned, and, and I believe as well, he's such a wonderful, dynamic, and passionate communicator of God's Word, and so it's a privilege to be able to to serve alongside him and under him and to get to hear him, uh, you know, each and every week. And, unfortunately, the only time I can come to midweek service is when I'm teaching, so I don't get to hear him on midweeks, but I can listen to the recording. So, last time I taught midweek, you know, I told you guys that the junior hires are next door. They're probably safe. I don't know what's going on with them over there. (laughs) I think I appointed some leaders to hang out with them and to help them, but uh, I can't know for sure, so... Um, yeah, you might want to be ready to, to call in either some emergency calls or missing persons or something. I'm not sure. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Nobody panic. Actually, I better go check. No, I'm kidding. All right. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, I, I took out the lectern again. Um, I mentioned that before. Everybody comes and tells me, oh, it must be you today. Um, one, I'm wearing the microphone, so it's easy to tell that way, but also because the lectern's gone. Some people are lactose intolerant. I'm lectern intolerant, so... I put, it, I put it not completely because I have this one here. So, um, But there we are. Yeah, you can always know when, when, when I'm up here or when the lectern is in, is in the shop. So we will be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we just started 1 Peter in the youth ministry, and we've been going through it. And um, when I taught this passage a while ago, I, um, I, I really enjoyed it. And so I thought that I would uh, share it with you guys this evening. Um, there's some... Some personal uh, things that took place regarding this passage that I found really exciting that I'm looking forward to sharing with you guys. And so that's where we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And our passage for consideration will be verse 4 through verse 12. But our primary focus is going to be on the first four or five verses, uh, 4 through through 8. And the other ones we'll just read for context. And so um, before I get started, I wanted to tell you that one of the first times I encountered this passage or a part of this passage was when I was a, a new believer, a fairly new believer, about nine years ago, and I was serving in youth ministry, and I was at a junior high summer camp, a junior high retreat, and I was slotted for one of the, the sessions to speak, and the, one, the, the passage that I was given was, was part of this passage here, and when I got it, it was actually uh, verses uh, 9 uh, nine through nine and ten, essentially, but I think it was in the context of this whole passage. And when I read over it as a fairly young believer with um, a lot less knowledge, working knowledge of the Bible in general, but especially the Old Testament at that time, I was really intimidated. And uh, when, especially when he talks about being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, um, I could put the pieces together, but I wasn't really sure what that looked like. So it's nice to be able to stand here about nine years later and uh, you know, have studied up on these things and be able to communicate it with a bit more confidence. And so I'm looking forward to that. So kind of a redemptive moment. 
for me because um, hopefully this doesn't happen, but the junior hires were all kind of looking at me cross-eyed when I started talking. So uh, you guys all have your eyes straight so far, as far as I can tell. Some of them are closed. That's okay, too. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get through that. So I got a foghorn. I'll take care of that up here. So uh, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning at verse 4. This is the word of God. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. All right, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would unfold the truths uh, that are uh, contained in this passage, that you would reveal them to us, God, and that we would be built up in our most holy faith as we look at them and consider them together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the context of First Peter, um, he, he begins by, by saying that he's writing to the churches that are, there's five churches or so scattered throughout the regions of Asia Minor. And just like a lot of the, the books of the New Testament, the Bible really, there was suffering going on. And the church was suffering. We're reading about that on Sunday mornings in Hebrews. I know that uh, I'm not in here on Wednesday nights, but I know that there was oppression in, in, in Daniel, the Babylonian captivity, um, under these uh, pagan uh, godless nations. And so the people of God are used, are, are used to, well, maybe not so much, but they're experienced at suffering. I don't know. You know, it's, it's difficult to get used to suffering. And that's part of the reason that Peter is writing this letter. He knows that these Christians who are suffering for their faith are having difficulty in their suffering. And he wants to write to them to encourage them to stand fast, just like the writer of Hebrews is doing as well. And so in the, in the context of this passage, um, he begins to talk about something that I think would have struck home for them uh, in a very powerful way. And uh, for us, it may not make so much sense. I mean, we can look at the analogy and say, hey, that's a good analogy, the living stone. Uh, Jesus is the living stone, and, and we are living stones being built up by him. But for them, it would have had a very significant uh, and important message contained in there. And so we're going to look at that. I've got a couple of slides. Let's see if we can get this rolling. Hey, look at that. That's cool. That's so cool. That has nothing to do with the message. I just thought I'd show it to you. No, it does, actually. It does. This is, this, this is part, of, part of what we're talking about. This is a model of, really, of Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem. It is in Jerusalem. A few of us that went on the trip to Israel in 2013 had the privilege of uh, touring a lot of the sites there. And this is one of the sites that we went uh, right before we went to go see the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Book of the Shrine. This is a, a, a model of first century Jerusalem. And that figure here, many of you know already, this right here is the Temple Mount. This temple platform was constructed by Herod the Great, the great builder. And this, this temple is the second temple that was built by Zerubbabel. And Herod lent a hand in remodeling it, upgrading it, and building this huge structure right here. So the direction we're looking at the temple here, we're looking from uh, from 
we're looking towards the west from the east. This is the eastern wall right here. This is the Kidron Valley. And so this, this structure right here would have been the heart, uh, not only of Jerusalem, but also of Israel. And ultimately, they say, it's the center of the world, this spot here. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to get zoned in to a, a particular place so that you can see kind of what would be correlating with Peter's message to, to these people. So this is looking from the south at the Temple Mount. Um, we got to go here. You can see the southern steps today. A lot of this is covered up because the, the, there's been building upon building upon building over the centuries that covered up the, the ground level here that was here in the first century. Now everything's built up much higher. But this is the southern wall. Uh, this would be uh, Solomon's colonnade. This is, the, this is the temple proper. Um, so when you talk about the temple, this is actually the temple. But this whole thing is also referred to as the temple, Herod's temple. And this right here would be the western wall. And the western wall contains a little section right here known as the wailing wall. And part of that wailing wall is what we would see today on TV when you see the Orthodox Jews going to pray. They pray against the wailing wall. Well, this temple, if you guys remember... When Jesus was walking with his disciples and his disciples were talking about this great structure that was built, right? Herod was still completing the temple. I mean, it was pretty much finished, but they were kind of doing, you know, putting on the trim, so to speak, on, on this temple structure. And Jesus is walking with his disciples and his disciples say, wow, Jesus, look at this structure. Have you ever seen anything like it? And Jesus says, oh, I tell you that not one stone will let be left upon another. And he was talking about the main temple uh, right here, which was destroyed and completely destroyed in A.D. 70. Um, the reason I'm saying all of this is because Peter is using this illustration of the living stone. And eventually he refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. They, the, the Jews, even though they weren't here when Peter was writing to them, they would have known exactly what Peter was talking about. Um, I'm going to zoom in a little bit on this. Let's see. It's a little zoomed in, zoomed in version. Uh, this, this archway is still here. It's actually, I'll show you another picture, but the ground level is about right here now. This is called Wilson Arch, and this is called Robinson Arch. This kind of is sticking out a little bit now, um, but... Um, it's still mostly there. This is the actual picture that we took. This is facing the western wall, so this would be the, the uh, southwest corner of the temple structure. Of course, the um, Al-Aqsa Al -Al uh, Mosque is up here now, and then a little bit to the north, you have the Dome of the Rock Mosque that's up here, and this would be the section of the western wall that's referred to as the Wailing Wall. And so when you are when you are here at this structure, go back, when you are, it is unbelievable. You've seen it on TV. Uh, some of you had the privilege of going on the trip. We have the trip again in 2016. If you're able to sign up for it, I strongly encourage you to do that. It'll be the trip of a lifetime. But when you're standing here looking at this, you don't, you're not even standing at ground level right here. You're standing like up a little bit higher on some of the places. There's been excavation, so some of it is lower um, actually at ground level, but you're standing there and you're looking at the structure and it's just like, <sighs> it's like the biggest thing I've ever seen. It's huge. It is so huge. And I could see why the disciples would be so mesmerized uh, by it. Um, let's see. Let's go on forward here. So here's the, here's the dome, dome of the rock. I actually took this picture to prove it. Here I am with Jim at the dome of the rock mosque. All right, it's, it's, it's slideshow time. I'm just kidding. I'm just, all right, the next picture. Oh, whoops. Uh, how'd, how'd that get in there? Let's see. It's, uh, it's, uh, oh, whoops. Oh, shoot. That's uh, Pastor Ross making friends with my son Dutro. Uh, oh. Somebody messing me with me back there? How'd those pictures get in there? All right, let's skip all that. Okay, here we go. Back on track. Sorry. Proud father. I just had to slip that in there. Got number two on the way. So we got the, yeah, got the, yeah, thank you. Yeah, she, she could go into labor tonight. That's how close it is. So if I have to leave, you know, Pastor Jim can come up and figure something out with you guys. We can figure that out. So uh, I'll come back to these, these pictures in a moment. But I'm going to pause here just for a moment 
because Jesus is being called the living stone by Peter. He is a living, breathing stone. As you come to him, Peter says in verse four, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Here, Peter tells us four things about Jesus. One, he's living. We don't serve um, a a non-personal being. We serve a true and living God, the living God, the resurrected King of heaven, Jesus Christ. He is a living stone. That's what Peter refers to him as. Jesus referred to himself as the living bread, the bread that gives life, that if you eat of this bread, you will never be hungry again, spiritually speaking. Also, living water. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive living water. He is living water. He is the living bread. He is the living stone. These stones are not, whoops, these stones are going black. These stones are not living, yet they are looked at as you know, a, a religious monument of great significance. And this is the thing that Peter wants to call attention to. Jesus is living. He's a living stone. He is chosen, chosen by God, the Messiah. You can read about that in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Um, he, he, is, he is the chosen one, the, the, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. It just means the one. It's kind of like a title with a big arrow pointing down to Jesus and saying the one, the one for what? For everything, the great I am. Whatever the need is, whatever, whatever the desperation is, Jesus fulfills it. He is the one. He is the savior. He's also called precious, precious to God. And not the Lord of the Rings type of precious. You know, I, I, I said this in the junior high group and one of them turned into Gollum and started, you know, now that's all in your minds. If you haven't seen it, good. You're probably wondering what it's about. If you have seen it, you're playing it in your minds. Come back to reality. Pay attention. Jesus is precious. He is precious. He's God's son. He's precious to God. As God's son, he is precious to him. You know, I have, um, uh, Dutro is my son. He just turned two yesterday. We had a great time uh, at his party on, on Saturday. And uh, the problem with two-year-olds is that when you teach them how old they are, um, when they're one, it seems like they're going to say they're that old for the rest of their lives, right? So a few days before his birthday, I started training him to get ready, right? Dutro, how old are you? One. No, you're, you're two. Two, 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 two. That's how he says, so cute. Ask him how old he is next time you see him. He'll say one first, and you correct him. He is two. Dutro is so precious to us. He's so, he's just so, yeah, he's just so precious. And so as a father, uh, and many of you are fathers, you know how precious your children are. And to God, Jesus is precious. He was the only begotten son of the father. He's the living stone, living and breathing, the true and living God. He, he um, was chosen by God for the appointed task of salvation for the world. And he is precious to God as God's one and only begotten son. But the fourth thing about Jesus in this verse is that he was rejected, rejected by men. We, we all of us, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, we esteemed him not. We've all turned our backs on him. And the testimony of our life against him is sin and, and rebellion. More on that in a moment. We'll get to the rejected part. Verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. More on this in a moment as well. Stay tuned. Going blank, go dark. Bam, just like that. Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Peter here is quoting Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. He's saying Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. He's the foundation of our faith. Now, most of you in here already know that. Paul agrees with Peter that we are, quote, members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I looked up cornerstone. I think we're, most of you are probably familiar what, with what it is, but I looked it up just for some official definitions. A cornerstone is a stone that forms the base of a corner of a building 
joining two walls. It's an important quality. It can be also defined as an important quality or feature on which a particular thing depends or is based. Another definition is a stone representing the nominal starting place in the construction of a monumental building, usually carved with the date and laid with appropriate ceremonies. When I read that definition, I started thinking about Jesus as the cornerstone of the building. You know, We're going to get to a little bit of a reality of what Peter was talking about um, to these Jews and how they would have been able to relate to it in a moment. But if you can imagine Peter relating Jesus to this cornerstone, actually, even from the Old Testament, this happening, the precious cornerstone that was laid for the, the, the building of God. Now, the Jews would have thought about the temple. Whenever you think of the building of God, they think about the temple. And that's why Peter is using this analogy of the cornerstone. The cornerstone would have been the most important part of the temple regarding its construction. From the cornerstone, everything else is derived. Um, and the cornerstone in its importance would have been would have been one of the most significant pieces of the temple. It's like a foundation for us, you know. Uh, we don't really use cornerstones that much in, in a lot of our modern buildings, especially houses and that thing, uh, things like that. But it, you can think of a, of a foundation. It would be like the foundation of the house. Without the foundation, without a proper foundation, everything else is going to be askew or even fall apart uh, prematurely. And so you need to have the proper foundation. And that's what Peter is saying here about Jesus. And it's just interesting that he would be the starting place of the construction of a monumental building. In this case, Peter's talking about the church, us as believers, and that um, usually this stone is carved with the date and laid with appropriate ceremonies. And I just got to thinking about it, and the date could be either when, when Jesus was born, when he came as the cornerstone, maybe somewhere between 6 or 2 uh, BC, um, or it could be when he laid down his life for the sins of the world around 33 AD. Maybe that would be the date that would be marked on this stone if it were an actual physical stone. And then, of course, it had appropriate ceremonies, the ceremony that we celebrate on Good Friday, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, uh, the last supper that he had commemorating uh, the time of, of, um, of blessing that would come as we remember Jesus um, because of what he's done for us, who he is and what he's done for us, or his resurrection. That was quite a ceremony, right? Easter Sunday, Jesus raising from the dead, three days being dead, being put in a, in a, in a stone tomb, having a huge rock rolled in front of it, and being there, left to be forgotten about. But it wouldn't be so. In three days, he uh, defeated the grave. He rose from the dead and gave hope to all of us uh, as well that we could have victory over sin and death through faith in him. And so Jesus as the cornerstone. He has, he has these certain dates and he has these appropriate ceremonies. Another definition of cornerstone could be the chief foundation on which something is constructed or developed. And I'm not just talking about a building. It's not just talking about a building. It's talking about an argument, a thought, um, some kind of um, worldview or process or structure, um, abstract structure even. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of our lives. He's the cornerstone for the foundation of our lives. Um, he's the cornerstone for the church. He's really the cornerstone for everything. And this is the thing that Peter wants to explain to these Christians who are suffering persecution so that they can be encouraged because he's not just like the rock, the cornerstone in the temple. He is a living cornerstone, a living stone. In verse six, it says, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Uh, That's from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. If you trust in Jesus, you'll never be put to shame. He'll never look down his nose at you. Uh, he'll never give you the cold shoulder. He'll never turn his back on you. Uh, all of that was done to him so that it wouldn't have to be done to us. And then the follow-up question would be, and this is the, certainly the thing that Peter is asking as well, calling his readers to, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, uh, not only for the church, but for your life as an individual, for everything in your life. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. Verse 7 says, Now to you who believe, this stone 
is precious. We think about precious, we can think about the things in our life. Maybe it's material possessions, uh, maybe it's relationships. Certainly, there are relationships that are precious to us. Um, a lot of times, I think people do think about material possessions, you know, but in this case, in com- compared with Jesus, forget about everything else. Forget about silver or gold, forget about rubies or diamonds. Uh, platinum or unobtainium. Yeah, calling it big here. Forget about all of that. Vibranium. What are some of those mythical ones? What is it? Huh? Yeah, Mithril. Thank you, Joseph. I knew I could trust on you. I knew I could count on you for that. Those facts. I was thinking of you, actually, when I had this in mind. I said, Joseph's going to appreciate this. Now, Jesus' blood, compared to everything else, Jesus' blood is the most precious commodity in all of the universe. Um, I think, you know, in our more in our culture, it's more politically correct. We we don't really like the the side of blood. We can't really we get queasy when we think about those things. But uh, when it comes to the blood of Jesus, I think we forget how precious it is. It is the most precious commodity the universe has ever seen. Nothing else could purchase the souls of men. Nothing could purchase the souls of men except the blood of Christ. So his blood is the most precious commodity in the universe. His stock is free. It's unlimited. It will never crash. It will never get hacked. And it will never stop trading. His stock is available for everybody for free for all time and eternity. But it will stop trading for an individual uh, if they have rejected it unto death in their life. And so there is limited time. And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And so Jesus' blood is the most precious commodity in the universe. Jesus is the most precious person in all time and eternity. And so the the follow-up question would be, is Jesus precious to you? Is his name like honey on your lips, like the song says? Is his spirit like water to your soul? Do you think about him in these ways? Is his word a lamp unto your feet? Do you love Jesus? How do we know if we love Jesus? Jesus said multiple times in his word, if you obey my commands, you are my disciples. If you, you are my friends if you obey my commands. And so we love Jesus through obedience. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, verse, also at the end of verse 5, it says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. More on this now. We, um, we kind of skipped verse 5, but it kind of fits in here. Uh, Paul says that we are God's building, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. And he also says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And so Peter here is saying that we're being built into a spiritual house. And Paul says that spiritual house is the place where God dwells. That's where he lives by his spirit. And so I'm going to go back to, actually I'm going to go forward to it. Yeah, there it is again. Uh, here's the wailing wall. So if you don't know what the wailing wall is, this is the most holy place in all of Judaism, because the temple has been destroyed. They can't access the temple. It's been replaced by a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Really, it's just a shrine. It's not really a mosque, but it's called, people call it the mosque. But anyways, just some extra information. You don't have to Wikipedia it now. Um, So this is the most holy site in all of Judaism, because this is as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies. The back of the temple would have stood right near this wall. And of course, the Holy of Holies is in the back uh, the backmost room of the temple. And so you'll see you know, on, on TV, especially during uh, the Jewish feasts, um, Passover, um, you'll see this whole area just filled with people, mostly, mostly uh, black coats, Hasidic Jews. Um, and then this court right here is actually for the women, so they separate where the men and the women can go at the Wailing Wall. And so you can see these stones. These stones are ginormous, 
They are huge. Now, up here, they get smaller because over the years, this, the, the, the stone work that was up here uh, got demolished or it was used for other building work. And so uh, a lot of it's gone. But you can see the remnants of Herod's structure down lower in the stones. Now, this right here is not the street level of what first century Jerusalem or yeah, Jerusalem would have looked like at the Temple Mount. Remember Wilson's Arch? That's right here. This would have gone down quite a bit. Maybe about in here. That's not exactly to scale, so I don't know for sure. But this is what remains of, of Wilson's Arch. And so these rocks are huge here, but they get even bigger as you go down. Imagine you're standing next to a rock from, let's just go, what are we going to go from? The corner, corner right here behind the drums. You know, the one stone is about this tall up to here. And it goes, some of them are 40 feet long, so... That's about the length of all the way to the wood, wood stone there. And I think they vary in depth from 6 to 10 feet. And so they are huge, massive stones, great feat of, um, of ingenuity, getting those stones into place. And when they fit them together, um, they were so um, precise that I heard that you, can't, you wouldn't be able to like slip a piece of paper in between them because the stones were so precise. Just a great... A great work that was made there. Um, but the point, the point of this picture right here is uh, Peter is telling these Christians that we are living stones being built up into the house of God. They would have thought of the temple. Their mind would have gone to the temple mount and they would have thought about these stones laid one upon another as representing God's house. And Peter's saying, no, just as the Jews look to this structure, which is not alive, it's not a living structure. There's not a living hope in this structure. God doesn't live here. He lives in the people that, spiritually speaking, these stones represent. That God, that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone down at the corner of the temple way down here. Seems like miles walking along there. Uh, it's not that far, but it seems like it. Um, he is the chief cornerstone, and we are being built up on his foundation as living stones. And what's so amazing about this is that people look at this site, they realize, they recognize that this is one of the holiest, that this is the holiest site in Judaism. So to, to Orthodox Jews, it's very precious, but to the world, it's very curious, right? It's a tourist attraction. We go and visit it. This testifies to the world that this is the place where the Jewish God lives. That's one of the purposes of this structure. Peter is saying, just like this testifies to the world that the Jewish God lives here, although he doesn't, but that's what the witness is of this structure to the world. He's saying where God really lives is in his people who are stacked up like these stones representing the church of God. In other words, people come here and they stand just like I did in awe of this structure. They say, wow, this is magnificent. It's ancient. How did this happen? How much more should they stand in awe of us as we are built together as the church to represent and testify to the goodness and the grace of God? They look at our lives, they look at the church, and they would hopefully be in awe at the work of God, where God lives, where he dwells. That's the hope. Peter goes on in verse 5. He says, um, We've been built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, God originally gave that privilege to the nation of Israel. He called them to be priests. In Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, he said, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um. You know, they were, they were the, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, they were to be the bridge that spanned the gap between God and the rest of humanity, preparing the way for uh, God's work of redemption. That's what the nation of Israel was set aside for, to serve God in holiness and to be a testimony to the rest of the world. We represent the true and living God whom we know who's revealed himself to us, and he wants you to know him as well. Unfortunately, they failed to represent God in this way to the rest of the world, and they, and they forfeited their unique calling. They can still be a part of the calling, but the calling has been expanded. Through Jesus Christ, all are welcome to come into the holy priesthood of God. In other words, when we 
come to faith in Jesus Christ, we all become priests. We all become priests. You know, we're not walking around with black robes and white collars. Um, you know, that's what people think about, I think, when they think priest. But really, priest, uh, the word for priest, the, the, the imagery is a bridge, a bridge. That's literally what pontiff means. If you've heard of the word pontiff in the Catholic Church, you have the pontifex, you know, the, the, the pope is the supreme pontiff. Pontiff literally means in the Latin, a bridge maker, bridge builder. And they are a bridge. We, as priests, are a bridge. And we take the hand of the world and we take the hand of God and we unite them. The only difference is we don't continue to mediate for them. We stand back through evangelism, discipleship. We help them come to God and then Jesus, who is the sole mediator, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, he becomes the bridge. We bring them to the true bridge. That's what it means to be a priest. And now we offer, in verse 5, it says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the question might be, well, what are these spiritual sacrifices look like? Because in the Old Testament, they had their sacrifices, Right? They had their peace offerings. They would offer uh, grain, wheat. Uh, they had their uh, animal sacrifices, their burnt offerings. They would give as offering for sin. These are the type of sacrifices. When we think sacrifice, that's usually what we think about. But the New Testament calls us to a different kind of sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice that would be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does this look like? Well, the Bible gives us a few areas where this, this spiritual sacrifice uh, is made. In Hebrews 13... Verse 15, we'll be heading there probably this next Sunday. Uh, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. One of the sacrifices that's acceptable and pleasing to God is our confession and praise, our confession of his name and our praise and adoration to him. That is a sacrifice. Now, it might not feel like a sacrifice to come in here and worship God. I don't really think of it as a sacrifice, uh, to stand and, and, and sing with you. Uh, sure, you know, I could be doing something else with my time, but what else would I want to do? I love worshiping God, and I love worshiping Him uh, in, in this, this church body with you. So it's not re- it doesn't really seem like a sacrifice, but there's the confession of His name. What comes along with, with worship is confessing His name, and there's a risk when we confess His name. The, the, the uh, Christians that Peter's writing to would have known that full well. They know that there's a risk associated with confessing the name of Jesus. And so there's risk involved, especially for them in evangelism, in discipleship, in worship. There was a heavy risk involved for them. Um, and it may continue, you know, it may develop to be that way for us as well. We're blessed in this country not to really have much of a sacrifice concerning you know, what we may stand against or the opposition we'll face in making Jesus known and confessing his name. I say, let's get while the getting's good and take opportunity of it and confess his name so that people uh, can come to know him and that he would see that as an acceptable sacrifice of praise to him. The second thing that the Bible says about praise or about um, uh, spiritual sacrifice, uh, Paul told the Philippians, he said, I have received the gifts you sent. This is chapter four and verse 18 of, of Philippians. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. It pleases God when we sacrifice uh, our resources, whether it be time or material, to be able to be a blessing to others, especially the family of God. I think Paul said in, uh, in Galatians, he said, um, you know, strive to, uh, w- w- let's see, what did he say exactly? He said, um, we would do well to, to, love, to love others, especially starting with the household of God. And so that's what we want to do. And that's what Paul was receiving here. And he said, that's an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Another way that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to God, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual and reasonable act of worship. We have these bodies that God gave us and he redeemed them for himself. The Bible says that, We were bought with a price. We're not our own to do with what we want with our bodies, that we have to make our bodies be subject to Christ. And that means in serving him, that means uh, in holiness. That's how we can live as spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. 
And, you know, in this verse, it talks about God's mercy and views in view of God's mercy. God was merciful to us, and he desires for us to be merciful to one another and to acknowledge him and his ways. Uh, and that's only reasonable. That's what Paul is saying. And this mercy comes up as another spiritual sacrifice. Hosea says in verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so mercy, being merciful, when we feel like somebody deserves punishment or judgments or revenge, that we would be merciful, remembering God's mercy for us. And then finally, another um, way that we offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord is through obedience. The prophet Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So the fact is that the New Testament sense of sacrifice is really obedience. We are living sacrifices, obeying the word of God by the power of the spirit of God to the glory of God. We live as, as um, spiritual sacrifices, obedient to God's word, living sacrifices. That's what the Lord has called us to. We who believe, that's the way we live our lives. And through that process, we are being built up as God's spiritual house where he dwells and reveals himself to the rest of the world. Verse seven, he says, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. This is from Psalm 118 and verse 22. So we're here at the Wailing Wall. I think I got another blank. Yeah. And so um, we, we entered a tunnel that goes along the, the, uh, Robins, or the Wilson Arch here we entered a tunnel, we went down underground, and we walked along the edge of the western wall down inside this tunnel. And as we approached the end of the tunnel, we came across this interesting thing. Boom. You can see right here. This is an actual cornerstone. The only problem is, is it's not part of the structure. This is the wall here. The wall runs along here and goes past this stone a little bit. This is a cornerstone. This, we're standing on, we went below, we're standing on uh, the ground where first century Jews would have stood, street level, um, in, in the temple area. And our tour guide said that this cornerstone seems to have been rejected by the builders when they were building the temple. Now, this building, this structure took place years after God prophesied this, after this was prophesied in, um, in Psalm 118, uh, many, many years later, about a thousand years. And so you have this stone here as potentially, I don't know for sure, but it seems like it fits the description, as potentially an actual physical stone that was rejected by the builders that's on first century ground here. That means that these Jews that visited Jerusalem to go back and celebrate the, the, the Jewish feast, which meant something different to them now in their newfound faith, would have passed by this stone, saw this stone that the builders rejected, and Peter is communicating this to them and saying, Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone that the builders rejected. And they would have thought about this stone and been able to make the connection between what Peter is saying about Jesus and how we are built up. Now, the analogy might fall short because maybe there was a legitimate reason to reject this stone. It didn't fit right. It wasn't going to be conducive to the building of the rest of the structure. But the point is that God gave a, 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 a visual representation of what is going on here. Just like the builders of the temple that were working for Herod rejected this cornerstone so too the nation of Israel rejected the most important figure they had ever come in contact with, the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have seen this. So this, this stone became um, a symbol of the rejection uh, of Christ to the nation of Israel. There's only two things that you can do with Jesus. Uh, you, you know, there's only two types of people. Some, somebody has said there's three types of people, those who can count and those who can't. Yeah. But that only comprises probably like five-fourths of us, so it's probably fine. <laughs> there you guys are. Hello. 
Good morning. <laughs> there are, the Bible says there are two types of people. Um, I was going to do something with math there, but I can't. So the Bible says there's two types of people, those who consider Jesus to be precious and those who have rejected him. He's either considered precious or he's considered rejected, worthless. Precious or worthless. And to those that the builders rejected, the, 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 the Jesus, the cornerstone that the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. So this cornerstone didn't say, hey, tough, tough luck, guys. I'm going to actually fit myself into this building and be the cornerstone. But Jesus is the cornerstone. Whether he's rejected or not, he fits as the cornerstone. The problem is, is that he doesn't fit for other people. Or I guess we could say that other people don't fit with him because it's his plan, it's his design, it's his purposes. And he has called them lovingly and wonderfully, has called us to align ourselves with his plan and his purposes. And to those people, this cornerstone has become a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. I got this neat little sign here. Jesus, to some people, is a tripping hazard. He's a tripping hazard. They've, you know, somebody hears about the truth uh, of Jesus, you share the gospel with them, and you can just see them in their expression or their response stumbling over the message that you are giving them. And so it's a perfect description. Winston Churchill said, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. You get this picture of somebody walking, minding their own business, right? And all of a sudden, they trip and they fall down. They get up, they look around, dust themselves off. Nobody's looking. Okay, good. And they walk off and they trip over the truth and they pick themselves up. They dust themselves off and they keep going, hoping that nobody saw. And maybe that happens repeatedly in their life. When we trip over the truth, it would be good for us to stand up and say, hey, look at that. That's truth, you know. I'm going to pick that up and take it with me so I don't trip up over it anymore. We take Jesus with us. So these Jews, um, the nation of Israel, and really not just them, but all of us, stumbling over Jesus uh, in many different ways. In the New Testament, uh, how, did, how did the nation of Israel stumble over Jesus? Well, they said, he's a friend of sinners. Stumble. He doesn't keep our traditions. Stumble. He claims to be greater than Moses. Stumble. He claims to be greater than the temple. And they stumble. He claims to be equal with God. There they stumble again. He claims he is able to forgive men of their sins. And there they stumble again. In verse 8 it says, They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. They stumble because they disobey the message. There's nothing intellectually superior about the gospel message. There's nothing that's lacking for them not to, not to acknowledge or not to know. There's nothing about the gospel that would prevent anybody from coming to a knowledge of the truth. So why do they stumble? They stumble because of unbelief. And ultimately, the Bible says that not only will this rock cause you to stumble until you quit rejecting it and receive it as precious. But in the end, ultimately, it'll also be your demise. You'll be crushed by this rock. The rock will crush you. I think I have the picture. I found this, you know, from Pastor Ross's message. Daniel, right? Remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about? Daniel interpreted the dream for him, and he talked about the fifth kingdom, it was a rock not made with human hands. It came soaring through the sky and crashed into the statue and destroyed it. Here's the rock crushing the kingdoms of the world, man's kingdoms, and ultimately, individually, those who would reject him. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way because um, there was another crushing that took place. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says that Jesus himself was crushed for us, that it pleased God to crush him. See, people who stumble over, over Jesus um, to the point of ultimately being crushed, uh, 
uh, could have avoided that by trusting in the one who was crushed for them, for their iniquities, that it pleased God to crush his son. Why? We've learned that Jesus is precious to God the Father. How could it please God for him to be crushed for us? Well, obviously the answer is because that's the love of God for us. God knew that that was the only way that we would have a chance to be reconciled in relationship to him through the crushing of his son, Jesus Christ. I think about my son, I think about the verse in Romans, one of my favorite verses, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the beginning, before that, in verse 7, it says, you know, maybe people would die for a good man. Somebody might die for a righteous man. But God's love is revealed in that he died for us while we we're still sinners. I think of my son. I couldn't give him up for anybody. Good, righteous, especially unrighteous. I would never give him up for anybody. God's love is different. God gave his son up. It pleased him to crush him so that we would be able to stand and not be crushed on that day that we face him. It's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. We stand before our creator and our maker. And so Jesus is either precious to us and we're being built up as the house of God for his glory to represent him the way this, the way that temple, where is it? The way the temple represents this wonderful, mysterious, and, and um, you know, magnificent place to the world that we would be built up and that people would see us and they would glorify God through, through um, their reaction, the response to our witness to them and that they themselves could avoid being stumbled from rejecting the rock and ultimately being crushed and they could receive the one that was crushed for them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us first. We love you, God, because you first loved us. And Lord, you demonstrated that love by laying down your life for us. None of us in this room, although we may be tempted to do so, and maybe we've done it in the past, or maybe we find ourselves doing it now, none of us can ever question your love for us when we look at the cross. We might think that life is unfair, that we're facing these trials, these circumstances of suffering, trial and tribulation. The reality is we'll never suffer the way that you suffered, Lord. And you suffered on our behalf. That's the way you revealed your love to us, God. Thank you for that great love. Help us, Lord, to walk in that love and always come back to the foot of the cross, cling to the cross and realize that the one who was crushed for us will not allow us to be crushed because he's taken that upon himself. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. Refresh us, inspire us uh, with, with that knowledge, Lord, that we may live to serve you and have joy no matter what our circumstances are. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our closing song together. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.